0: Well, I want to welcome all of you again to our Easter service today. Uh, Here in our celebration service, also uh, across uh, the other side of campus, all those that are worshiping in our summit service, and of course those that are worshiping online with us or on our television broadcast, it's good to have the whole family gathered in today for Easter worship. I want to give you just a little bit of an advertisement before we get on with the message. Uh, Next Sunday, uh, I'm going to start a new Sunday school class. Uh, Now, I've had a Sunday school class, and so if you're in that class, don't think I'm bailing on you, Uh, but we're going to restart our Sunday school class this next Sunday, and I want to invite everyone who is not currently active in a Sunday school class to join me for that. Uh, What we're going to do is to focus on some of the basics of the spiritual life and spiritual disciplines and how they help us to grow in our relationship with God. Uh, And the little advertising piece I put together, here were the... Uh, invites the PowerPoints if you will Uh, learn from the ground up what the Christian life is all about explore what it means to really live out the Christian life go back to basics begin again in your walk with the Lord press on rise above the level of mediocrity in your Christian life and overcome some long-held doubts and skepticism about the relevance of the Christian life today And so if you'd like to be a part of that, I need you to indicate that on the green card. I don't have a classroom now. And uh, depending on how many people mark it on their card, I might be meeting in a broom closet or in a a big hall somewhere. So you choose the room that I get assigned this week. But seriously, I need everybody who would like to come and be a part of the class, 9 o'clock Sunday morning, same time all the other classes meet. If you'd like to be a part of that, please indicate on that card and get that card to us before you leave today. We'll reach out to you this week and extend an invitation uh, to the class. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. There are so many important dates uh, through the history of man that we could talk about, very significant dates that determine the course of history. Uh, We could talk about decisive military battles. That determine the rise and fall of nations. We could talk about uh, inventions that have changed the way we live day to day. We could talk about the birth dates of influential historical characters, whether they uh, were politicians or military leaders or religious leaders. And we can look at a, at a lot of very important dates through history, but there are four dates that rise above them all. There are four dates so significant that those dates determine everything else in life, both in the world and in our personal lives. I want to tell you what those dates are. The first date is the date of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Of course, none of us can have a relationship with God. Uh, All of us would be hopelessly separated from God were it not for the crucifixion of Christ. That's date number one. Date number two, obviously, I think this morning, is the resurrection. Uh, we're here today to celebrate the resurrection. This is Resurrection Sunday, and we've gathered to say that Jesus is risen. And so this is a big day in our year, but it certainly is a grand day in the history of man. And then the third date is one that's yet to come. It is the return of Christ. You know, the same Bible that says that Jesus was crucified and that Tells us that jesus rose from the dead also tells us that jesus is coming again as a victor as a conqueror uh, He is coming for his children and he is coming in Judgment and then day number four I want to keep sort of close to the vest for a few minutes and we'll talk about it when we get to the conclusion of the message today, I want to begin a series of messages Uh, maybe six or eight weeks, I want to begin a series of messages where we walk through the book of Revelation from beginning to end, and we talk about this third day, the return of Christ, but we connect it with all of those other great days. We'll see that the crucifixion is connected to the resurrection, the resurrection to the return of Christ, and then all three of those to day number four. Without the crucifixion, of course, there would have been no resurrection. And Without the return of Christ, the resurrection would only be a half-told story. And then all of those uh, contribute to day number four. We're going to see, as we study the book of Revelation over the next several weeks, just how all of those things fit together. Now one of the obvious things that we'll also include when we study the book of Revelation is what does the Bible say about the return of Christ? Because that's the question that so many people ask. When somebody stops me at the grocery store or at Walmart, and it's somebody I don't know, and they have a question, uh, often that question is about the return of Christ. People want to know, when is Christ coming back? People want to know, what are the signs of the times? People want to know today, what is the pandemic, or maybe the war in, in Ukraine, or, or maybe terrorism in the Middle East. How does that fit in with what the Bible says in the book of Revelation, and how does that fit in with the end of the world? And our goal is to cover almost all the verses in the book of Revelation in the next several weeks, and to answer from the Bible, all of those questions and more. But today, I wanna jump right in with Revelation chapter four. Now you might ask about the first three chapters. Uh, We're not just omitting those. Uh, We covered Revelation chapter one last Sunday in the prequel uh, to this series, and you can find that online. Revelation 2 and 3 contain seven letters that Christ wrote for seven historical churches in the Middle East, and I preached on that on all seven of those uh, a year or so ago. You can also find that on our website, but that brings us to chapter 4, verse 1, and this is where we will begin the Bible says after this I looked and there in heaven was an open door the first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet now said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this so these are the words of John the disciple John the Apostle Uh, He was living in a time that there was great persecution. In fact, all the other disciples and apostles had been executed for their faith. But John had been arrested, not executed, and he had been sentenced to a prison island, Patmos, hard labor, uh, for the rest of his life. And so here he is on this island, and he's praying one day, and God gives him a vision. God, in a sense, takes him to heaven and says, I want to show you the things that will happen after this. Now, when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, here's something important to understand. Everything from here forward in the book of Revelation, these are future events, future events. These are the things that will happen next. Now, it's not that the book of Revelation was not relevant for all the generations of Christians. It was, and it is, but the events described in chapter 4, verse 1 and following, these are future events. One other interesting thing, at least interesting to me here in this first verse, is the Greek word. This was originally written in Greek. The Greek words translated after this. These are the things that will happen after this. Have you ever heard, I know you have, heard people talk about the metaverse? Do you know what that is? Uh, You hear Mark Zuckerberg talking about the metaverse, the Facebook owner. And uh, the metaverse is this uh, computer-generated environment uh, where you can live, so to speak, and you can have relationships and play and own things it's uh, it's really fascinating I don't know much about it to be honest but everybody's talking today about the metaverse well I'm not suggesting that Zuckerberg is making any biblical allusions and certainly there's no Facebook in the Bible but this is just a quirk of vocabulary the Greek words translated after this are meta-tauto meta-tauto and so people today are talking about living so to speak, in the metaverse, this computer-generated environment. But what John says here in Revelation 4:1 is that there is a different metaverse. There is a, there is a life after this, and we're all destined to really live that life. So this is God's metaverse. Uh, let's look at verse 2. He says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. So John is given a a vision of heaven. He's in the throne room of God. And with the best words that he has, he describes for us what he sees. And this is amazing. We ought to think about this. Here, John has been ushered into the very throne room of God, and there's God, and and there's a throne, and, and, and there's some worshipers. We'll see more of that in a moment. It's interesting when John describes what he sees. He does so partially with symbols and partially with comparisons. Now, this is important to understand to read really the rest of the book of Revelation. It's filled with symbols and comparisons. So some things are symbols. When John says, I saw a throne, uh, he's talking about something that symbolizes the power, the authority, and the sovereignty of God. God is spirit. God doesn't have hips and a backbone and legs and a need to sit down and rest. Uh, He's talking about the, the power and authority of God. Now, did John actually see a throne? Well, maybe, likely, perhaps, but this has a greater meaning than that. He's talking about the power of God. So there are many symbols in the the book of Revelation, and then there are comparisons. You notice he says here in verse 3 that the one seated on the throne had the appearance of, and then he names a couple of precious stones, jasper and chanelion stone, He's not saying that God is a pile of rocks. Uh, He's using the best words he has to describe something that is indescribable. And he says it's like, I don't know, looking at the most brilliant, the most colorful, the most fantastic, precious stones I have ever seen. God is that and so much more. This is a comparison. He's just looking for something earthly to compare these fantastic things that he sees but he sees, he sees the Lord in some sense. There are also times when something will be both a symbol and a comparison, and these stones are probably a really good example of this. Often in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible will tell us what the symbols in the book of Revelation mean. In fact, it's uh, Over 500 times in the Old Testament, 500 times in the book of Revelation, I should say, there's a symbol that's defined in the Old Testament. And here with the stones, we see that in, uh, I think it's uh, Exodus uh, Exodus 28, uh, there's a description of the stones. And so there are symbols, and then there are uh, these comparisons. Now, verses 4 through 8... I hate to skip any of these verses, uh, but verses four through eight further describe this throne room and those that are in the throne room. But skip on down to verse eight, if you have your Bible open, and we're going to go about halfway down the verse, and I want to pick up reading there. It says, day and night, they, those in heaven, the creatures described in the verses we skipped over, day and night, they never stop saying Holy 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 the Lord God the Almighty who was who is and who is to come and so there's this worship of God the Father now he tells us something about the Father he says that the Father is holy 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 is God the Father well what does the word holy mean in the Bible the word holy is really used in two different ways first The word means moral perfection. And second, the word means other. When it comes to moral perfection, of course, God is perfect. God is morally perfect. God always does the right thing at the right times for the right reasons. God has never erred and never sinned. But more than that, holy means that he is other, holy means that he is different. Every attribute of God, everything that is true of God is true to the infinite degree. When we say that God is powerful, we don't just mean that he is a little stronger than than we are strong. We mean that his power is without measure. When we say he has wisdom and knowledge, we're not just talking about he knows more than we know. His wisdom and his knowledge are boundless. When we say that he is beautiful, his beauty is without comparison. When he we say he exists, well, there is no precedent to God, there's no antecedent to God. God's existence is eternal. And when we say that God is just, we know that God rules and there is no one to whom you can appeal. God is holy in everything that is true about him. And you notice it doesn't just say holy, that would be enough. But it says, holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy. He's not just different. He's not just holy, holy, more different. But he's holy, holy, holy. He is in a completely different category. God is the epitome of every quality of greatness. And there is none who compare. Now, God's holiness is a reason to rejoice and a reason to recoil It's a reason to rejoice because since he is holy, we know that he is unchangeable, he is reliable, he is true, he doesn't lose his temper, he is uh, uninfluenced by evil desires, he is uncompromising, and God always keeps his promises. He is holy. But he is holy also means that God hates sin. He will not tolerate the presence of evil and he will not relent from punishing every sin committed by every person in every time of history and the Bible says the wages of sin is death whenever there is a sin the perfect holy judge of heaven God himself promises to execute punishment for that sin and he says that punishment is death he is holy So, is his holiness a good thing or is it something we should dread? Well, it's really determined by what side of that holiness you find yourself. And we'll come back to that. Well, let's continue to read. I'm skipping now down to verse five, chapter five, I should say, verse one. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also, verse two, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now we've got a little shift here because the focus in chapter four is on the throne of God. The focus in chapter five is on this scroll. Well, let's talk about the scroll. What is that? Well, in those days, if you wanted to write a long message, you would write it on parchment, and then you would just roll it up. And then you would seal that roll with hot wax, and you would put your ring, the symbol on your ring, you would would imprint that wax, and that would show that it was sealed, nobody else had read it, it would indicate who had sealed it, and that that person could determine who could open the scroll. For instance, if you were a king and you wanted to send a private message to another king, you would write it on a long piece of parchment, you would roll it up, you would seal it, and then you'd send it to the other king. The king would look and he could see that the seal had not been broken, so nobody else had read the message, and he could see that the message was authentic because it had the seal, it had the imprint from the king who had sent the message. So here's the scroll. What is on this scroll? Well, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about this scroll and beginning in chapter six and, and, for many, many chapters, there's a description of what's in this scroll and the scroll contains the specific plan for how God's going to bring the end of the world, how God's going to bring the consummation of everything. All the details are there. Many of the details are there and that's specifically what's on the scroll, but there's something more here in a more general sense. This isn't just a list of of details of future events. This is God's plan to bring all of human history to his goal. This is God's plan to sum up. This is God's plan to bring to fruition, to finally achieve what he's wanted to achieve. This is God's plan for every person and every time and every event. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. God created everything that's been created. God is Lord over every person who has ever been conceived. And God has a plan to bring his whole creation together. Every single person and every event, God will use all of that and it will all be a part of this beautiful symphony and it will all come together for one purpose and this is God's plan to bring that to resolution. We looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 last week. Let me just quickly read that again. It says, God highly exalted Jesus Christ and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father That's God's end. That's the purpose of God's creation. That's your purpose. And that is your satisfaction. That will fulfill every longing you have. This is the thing that we look forward to. And in this scroll, it represents God's plan to bring all of these things to that point. Romans 8:28 says God will take all things, all people, all events, all tragedies, all victories, all tears, all heartbreaks, all disappointments, and he will use all of those things together to accomplish this purpose. There is no person, there is no day, there's no victory or defeat, there's no celebration, no tragedy, there is no cheer and no tear that God's not going to use for this great purpose. God wants to redeem everything that's happened in your life and everything that's happened in history to bring it all together for this symphony of praise. And as I said, to be a part of this will be the greatest honor of our lives. You were created for this, and it will bring the full and the final satisfaction to all of our longings. The scroll is God's plan. For that great day to right every wrong to dry every tear to satisfy every desire to bring justice and healing and restoration and peace it's all in the scroll so we've sort of set a scene we've seen God in chapter 4 now we see the scroll in chapter 5 what happens next well that's where I want us to focus this morning if you're looking at your outline that brings us to point number one mankind's every hope is in the end a false hope now let's continue to read and I'll warn you verse 3 is the saddest verse in all the Bible it says but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. There was a census taken. There was an exhaustive search executed. And no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And to open the scroll means really to execute the plan. So here God has a plan to redeem everything in your life, to redeem every victory, but also every grief and every tear. And God has a plan for all of history. But there was no one who could open the scroll. There was no one who could execute God's plan none of the angels could do it none of the angels could do it none of the representatives of man could do it Moses couldn't do it Elijah couldn't do it David couldn't do it none of the prophets could do it Jeremiah couldn't do it Isaiah couldn't do it John the Baptist couldn't do it James couldn't do it the Apostle Paul couldn't do it nobody could open the scroll and execute the plan God has a plan to bring everything together but there is no way that me or you or anybody else can execute that plan now why is that important because our life is filled with sin and heartbreak and loss and betrayal and disappointment and death and there is no hope there is no hope anything you put your hope in will ultimately turn out to be a false hope because no one can open the scroll nothing can achieve God's goal nobody can execute this plan there is no hope. Look at verse 3 again, but no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. Ultimately, everything you do and everything you turn to is a false hope. Your new attitude is ultimately going to fail. Your career, your spouse, your bank account, your friends, your home, your retirement, your dreams. They will all fail to solve the problems that are yours because of sin. No accomplishment will ever erase the effects of sin in the world or in your life. No pill you can take will ultimately bring peace or joy. No new beginning, no meditation, no spiritual path will ultimately lead to anything but the loss of everything that you've put your hope in and ultimately it'll end in death. This verse says that an exhaustive search was made and no one and nothing could solve the problem or execute God's plan. The reality is we live life, we sin, and then we just await the consequences of our ultimate eternal death. I don't mean just to cast a shadow, but The very best we can hope for is to live a long life, go through struggles, watch people we care for, suffer heartbreak, bury some of our loved ones, and then die. And when we take our last breath, we will be as powerless and as weak as we were when we took our first breath. There is nothing to put our hope in. No one can open the scroll, and nothing can bring about God's plan because of our sin. Now, I want to take you to point number two. If you're looking at your outline, all people are desperate for a rescue. Obviously, if there's no hope, we're desperate for a rescue. Look at verse four. I, John is writing, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it says that John wept why did he weep but well, he understood the seriousness of verse three he understood that without without the scroll being executed if there was no way God's plan could be accomplished then everything was meaningless it was all meaningless and he was desperate for some rescue he was broken-hearted that there was no way that God's plan could come about what was John weeping for in particular I wonder if he thought about his own plight. Here he had lived his life for the Lord. He had sacrificed so much. He had been arrested and and, and sent to this prison island as an old man to work himself to death. All for nothing. All for nothing if God's plan can't be executed. He must have thought of people in his family and people in his church. It was such a difficult time. And many of them had given their lives for their faith. But it was worth nothing if God's plan couldn't be executed. I was reading this week a, a, a preacher, Adrian Rogers, who's a champion at the use of words. And let me read to you what he said. Why does John weep? Because unless this scroll is opened, everything is a colossal mystery and an unfathomable sorrow. Unless the scroll is open, John has been exiled in vain, and the martyrs died for a lost cause, and there is no future. I read another Texas preacher of a couple of generations ago, W.A. Criswell. Here's how he said it. John's tears represent the tears of all of God's people throughout the centuries. Those tears of John are the tears of Adam and Eve, who were driven out of the garden as they bowed over the first grave as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent still form of their son Abel those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried out to God in affliction and slavery they are the tears of God's elect through the centuries who have cried out into heaven they are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead as they stand beside their open graves And as they experienced the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches, and disappointments, indescribable. You see, when John cried those tears, they were really our tears in a sense. They were the tears that you cried when you buried your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or a child. And you stood there, grieved over just how fragile life is. They were the tears of a young man or a young woman with thoughts of suicide who just can't find the purpose and the strength to go on. The tears that John cried are the tears of a wife who has been betrayed by the one person she gave her heart to and she can't understand why life could be so painful. They're the tears of a lonely man desperate for someone to love him and care for him. The tears of a young wife who can't have children and wonders why God would give her a heart with the capacity to love children, but not a body with the capacity to have children. The tears of a parent who is exhausted from praying for a wayward son or daughter. The tears of a a couple in a doctor's office who have been told that the cancer is incurable They're the tears of a man who looks back on his life and feels regret for his failures. Because if no one can execute the plan, then all of that is loss. Every tear, mine and yours and John's, is a declaration of our desperation for rescue. Lord, rescue me from the disappointment and from the pain. And from the failure that's why John was crying there's no one to open the scroll there is no one that can solve the problems of this life well look at the next point Jesus is the answer and in verses 3 and 4 the saddest verses in the Bible I have good news because 5 and 6 are the best verses in the Bible It says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. This is the greatest passage in Scripture. Now, let me show you four quick things about this. First, it says that one of the elders said something to John. Now, we don't know who that was, but I know who it gets to be today. It gets to be me okay this is my job today this is my glorious assignment today so here is John he's weeping because no one was found who could execute the plan of God nobody could bring resolution to the problems of man and he's weeping and so an elder steps out and taps him on the shoulder and says John don't weep because look The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And that is my job today, to tap you on the shoulder with whatever kind of disappointments, whatever kind of fears, whatever kind of heartbreak, whatever is going on in life, good or bad. It's my job to tap you on the shoulder and say, do not weep. For while every hope of the world is a false hope, look, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has come. That's my job today. And it's your job to be John and hear that and learn this great truth. The second thing we see here is that he says, look at the lion, but then John looks and sees a lamb. Did you see that? There's a switch here. So the elder says, look, John, don't weep. There's a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lion refers to strength and power and and victory. That he has conquered in fact it says that he has conquered so so the elder says look a lion but then John looks and it's not a lion it's a lamb and at that it's a lamb that had been slaughtered it is a weak little lamb slaughtered now what does that mean is there a bait and switch here no this is the most beautiful truth in the world Jesus has conquered he has conquered sin he has conquered death But he is conquered, not by coming as a king, but he is conquered by coming as a lamb, slaughtered to pay the penalty for our sin. Isn't this wonderful? Jesus Christ is conquered by coming and living a perfect and a sinless life and then dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and yours. That's how he has conquered. That's how he has won the victory. And so the elder says, look, a lion. And he looks and it's a lamb. It's a reminder of the crucifixion of Christ. All of us, apart from the crucifixion of Christ, are hopelessly separated from God. God is holy and we're sinful. That separates us from God and God is the source of life. So it sends us to a place of eternal death. We will be without life. The wages of sin is death. It is hopeless, except for one thing. Jesus came and he died for us. He paid our penalty. He died on the cross, bled and died for our sins. The conquering lion came as a lamb to the slaughter. And he's talking here about the the crucifixion. The third thing we see in these two verses is is that the slaughtered lamb if you look at it closely it says he was standing in the midst of the throne the lamb died Jesus died but now he's alive this is a picture of the resurrection the resurrection Jesus died but he didn't stay died okay he died but he is not dead Jesus is risen he has risen he has demonstrated that he has he has paid for our sins and he has conquered death and hell I think of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul was writing and he got so excited and he says this death has been swallowed up in victory where death is your victory where death is your sting he says death you have been beaten there's nothing you have against us now he says the sting of death is sin And the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because he's defeated death he's defeated death and then the fourth thing we see right here in these two verses is we notice that the the lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah and it says that he has conquered he has conquered now he conquered death uh, through the resurrection that's what we celebrate uh, on Easter. And so we're here today celebrating the resurrection. You know, though, that we celebrate the resurrection every week. Did you know the reason why churches meet on Sunday is because it's a celebration of the resurrection? It wasn't until recent history that we started celebrating the resurrection once a year. Now, I'm glad we do. We always will until the Lord returns. But, but really, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, every Sunday. And and so here we we celebrate the resurrection. That's how he conquered. But, But I think the important part of this title, the Lion of Judah, is to remind us that when Jesus came the first time, he came as a babe in a manger and he died as a criminal on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But when he comes again, he will come as a warrior and a lion he will come in power. He will come to, for, for rescue of his people. And he will come in judgment of those who are not his, cho- not his children. He, he came first as a babe. He will come again as a warrior. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we learn more here about the wonder of Christ. It talks about the seven, uh, the seven horns and the seven eyes. And we will certainly come back to that if the Lord allows in the, in the weeks to come. But here's what I want you to see. Here's the most important part of those two verses. Everywhere we can turn, everything you can trust in, in this world will turn out to be a false hope, but there is a rescuer. There is a savior Jesus steps forward and he is worthy to open the scroll and he is worthy to execute God's plan. And God's plan will be executed and all of God's purposes and all of the things in your life and all of the hardships and the griefs and the victories and the days and the events and, and everything will be brought to this wonderful conclusion that will bring glory to God and satisfaction to our longings because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. You know, when I I have tried in the past to comfort people who are, uh, you know, grieved over the loss of a loved one, often I would say to them, uh, put my arm around a a woman who's lost her husband or some other terrible situation. And I would say, God knows, God knows. And I, I think that brings comfort. times just a reminder that at the worst hour God our Father he knows he's with us but you know I don't say that anymore or at least I don't just say that I say something more now I say God has a plan I'm not saying you shouldn't cry you shouldn't be grieved and heartbroken of course you should you you love and that's a part of love. But I reassure you with this, that God has a plan to take every hardship and every tear and bring it in as a part of this uh, sacred symphony to accomplish his purposes. And even this day, the darkest day of your life, I want you to know God has a plan. And Jesus is worthy to execute that plan and that's worth celebrating I want to show you a, a, a fourth thing you, you see if you're looking at your outline the time is near and this frankly is a teaser a little bit for the messages to come but if you look at verse 7 Revelation 5 7 it says he went Christ went and he took the scroll Out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne that is the next event in the history of the world I told you these are future events that's next in heaven that's next Jesus is going to walk over so to speak and he's going to take the plan he's going to take the scroll and then we're skipping some very important verses that we'll come back to but look at chapter 6 verse 1 then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals. Here's what I want you to hear there. The time is near. I, I, I don't know if the Lord's gonna come back in 2022. Please don't tell somebody I said that. Uh, he may, he may come back today. Uh, wouldn't it be neat if God came back on Easter? I'm glad he didn't come back between point two and point three. <laughs> I was pretty bummed there and ready to get to the next point. But uh, yeah, God could come back at any moment. Christ could come back at any moment. Lord, come quickly. But whether he comes back today or this year or not, the message here for us is that the time is near. Every day is one day closer, every day we're one day older. Every day our hearts are one day harder. The time is near. The time is near to love God as the Holy One. The time is near to trust Christ as the slaughtered lamb. The time is near to surrender to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Not that you will never sin again. You will until he makes you perfect. But that you're going to do all you can to surrender your life to his will. You know, I said at the beginning of the message that there are four significant dates. Everything turns on these four days. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the return of Christ. You know what day number four is? Day number four is the day that you chose, or the day you will choose, to finally trust Christ alone for your salvation. If you're taking notes in the outline, I invite you just to write that date down. Uh, for me, it was in March of 1985. I don't know the number of the day. March of 1985. I put my trust in Christ fully and finally. God saved me, adopted into me into His family. Best day of my life. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the return of Christ in March of 1985. That's mine. If there's never been a time in your life when you've understood that you you were guilty of sin and your only hope was what Christ had done for you and that you trusted and surrendered and you told him that then won't you do that today and put today's date right there now uh, musicians just stay in your seats a moment I, I have something more I want to say but let me ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes I want to pray Because I think this is the most important moment of the morning. Father, I come to you and I pray that you'll speak to our hearts and help us to understand that these four days, it's everything. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the return of Christ, and the day we've put our trust in you, the day we've surrendered to you. And Father, I pray today that people who have not yet done that, that today they'll do that. And I pray that for those of us who have, we'll celebrate it. What a day. What a change. Now your head bowed and eyes closed, let me just say one more thing here. If you've made that next step today, I want you to let us know. You're welcome to come down when we sing in a moment. I'll be here in the front, I'd love to greet you. Uh, but I know a lot of people, you're just not comfortable doing that, and that's fine. But if you would indicate that on that little green card, and you get that to us today, we'll reach out very soon this week. We just want to encourage you, pray for you, celebrate with you. Now, everybody look up here at me for a moment. Hey, I want to I, I want to acknowledge I've skipped a bunch of verses, and partly for time and because we're going to come back to these. But there are some verses I skipped that I that I, I shudder that I skipped them. And if we had more time, I'd I wouldn't skip them, but I, I want to point them out to you. What happened between Revelation 5:7 and Revelation 6.1? There's about seven verses there. Well, this is important. When, when Christ stepped forward as the one who was worthy to take the scroll and to execute the plan of God, you know what happened in heaven? An explosion of praise broke out, like, like has never happened before. There's this worship in heaven, and it's described in those seven verses. Some of the greatest verses in all the Bible, it's described right there. You can read those seven verses. I timed it this morning in one minute and four seconds. One minute and four seconds. So let me give you an Easter gift. If you'll do this, this will be a gift. Best gift you'll get this Easter, okay? So will you take a minute and four seconds every morning for the next week? And when you wake up before your feet hit the ground, grab your Bible, read these seven verses, one minute, four seconds. And I want you to think in heaven. This is what the people did when they recognized that Jesus is the Savior and that he is worthy and he is ready to execute the plan of God, to bring full salvation, to bring the ultimate satisfaction, to bring glory and honor to God, and to bring all the storylines to a close, to to make every tear, to redeem every tear. When when they recognized that Jesus was worthy and willing, this is how they celebrated. And you read those seven verses. And then you just say a brief prayer, Lord, thank you that Jesus is worthy to bring it all to a close. And here's here's how it's a gift. You do that for seven days. Next Sunday, your heart will be ablaze. And we'll open our Bibles. The Lord didn't come back between now and then. We'll open our Bibles and we'll start working on this scroll. We'll start working on this scroll head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, thank you that you have a plan, that there will not be a a tear shed, a disappointment experienced, a a grief felt that you will not use for your glory and honor and our ultimate satisfaction. Thank you that Jesus is worthy and able to execute that plan. Father, help us to be ready That's why you give us these words. Help us to be ready. Join you in that great work. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.